Welcome to From Embers to Excellence, a podcast that explores the many facets of leadership from the perspectives of some amazing people. We discuss the triumphs and failures that have shaped our lives and our leadership philosophies. It isn't whether we fail that defines us, but when we do fail, how do we respond? Leaders dust off the ashes and use their failures as fuel to work harder and as lessons to come back wiser and stronger, more resilient, more determined, and more committed to excellence. And now, here is your host, Dave Hollenbach. Today's guest is Kelly Savage, the Community Outreach Director for the IAFF Center of Excellence, who assisted with opening the IAFF Center of Excellence in 2017. She spends much of the year traveling the US and Canada, educating members on behavioral health issues and services available to them through the Center of Excellence. She has spoken to over 50,000 IAFF members through the International's Peer Support Program, Partner Education Program events, health and safety symposiums, and state and district conventions. Kelly is a graduate of the University of Mississippi with a degree in broadcast journalism. Specializations in public relations and media management and a minor in political science. Kelly, can you give a little bit of insight to what led you to be involved with the fire service in this capacity? And, and by the way, thank you very much for agreeing to come on and, and talk a little bit about what you do. Absolutely. Thank you for having me, Dave. Um, it is a pleasure to be here and an honor to share more about uh, my work and the IFF Center of Excellence. Um, so I'll be quite honest to tell you that this is not necessarily the career I anticipated, um, you know, when I was planning for that and in college, as you mentioned, um, I was a broadcast journalism major. And uh, with that, I had plans to go into TV news. Um, so this is a little slice of that today. Um, but, you know, I was pretty honest with myself that I wasn't cut out for it. <laughs> um, and reporting is not at all fighting fires, uh, but generally you have to start out in a very small rural town. You make almost no money. Uh, it's a lot of crime reporting, late hours, no holidays. Uh, it's a tough gig and you really have to have a passion for it uh, and be scrappy to kind of you know become that 1% that makes it to a network. And uh, I'll be frank to say, I, I just didn't have the passion to, to put myself through that kind of sacrifice. So um, I wound up getting an awesome opportunity with Advanced Recovery Systems, um, which is the owner and operator of the Center of Excellence. Back before um, we were a partner with the IFF, this was in 2015, um, they were looking to expand their digital marketing efforts and do a lot of uh, video education about um, addiction medicine, neurology, drug taxonomy and needed someone to produce and host that video content. So they hired me as um, an in-house reporter, essentially, to do all this on-air work um, that was specific to our goals and the educational efforts that we were putting forth uh, through the recoveryvillage.com and advanced recovery systems. So I got to combine my educational background with uh, corporate hours. <laughs> And um, you know, working in an office and having uh, holidays off and and pretty good pay, um, so I really felt like I got the best of both worlds. And through that, um, I became exposed to behavioral health in a very uh, upfront way. You know, I was doing a lot of the research and and re reporting on these issues and the intricacies of behavioral health treatment. Um, different substances, uh, drug trends, things like that, and um, got a real feel for what we're dealing with in America today. Um, so over the course of my time at ARS, uh, my role has evolved greatly. Um, they did make a shift away from kind of the, the video components we were doing back in 2015. Um, and that was around the time that we partnered with the IAFF. And they realized, you know, this is going to be a really big project. This is going to be something that is one of a kind. So there's no roadmap for it. Um, and we're going to need someone to run point as the go-between, uh, essentially an account manager between advanced recovery systems and the international. And so that's where I stepped in to take on that role as we were developing the IFF Center of Excellence. 
So um, I've worked very closely with uh, IFF headquarters, their health and safety team from day one um, to design the center of excellence and make it what it is today, um, open three and a half years. And um, even within that role, <laughs> uh, my job has changed since then. Uh, fairly soon after opening, we identified that uh, you know, just one of us at the time, my colleague Miranda on the road, educating members and talking about the center of excellence and, um, you know, just promoting this new offering that the IFF had available was not going to cut it. You know, there were 50 states, seven Canadian provinces, I think, and especially with the rise of the peer support program and an opportunity for us to speak at those events, um, it became very apparent we needed someone else hitting the ground. So, uh, I stepped out to do that, have worked my way uh, to become one of our outreach directors. And um, in normal times, I would be traveling about 20 to 25 days a month, um, doing all the things you described, peer support trainings, PEP events, symposiums, conventions, um, but COVID had other plans for 2020. So a lot of that has become virtual. Um, we're adapting the best way we can, you know, to reach as many people and as many IFF affiliates as we can from home. Uh, but it has been a uh, great joy and a privilege to work with, you know, the bravest men and women across North America in this role that I never expected, but I'm very grateful to have. Do you have any insight on how the IAFF and ARS came to partner together? You know, I'm not totally sure of uh, the, the initial origin. What I do know is that um, the general president had mutual friends with um, our chairman of the board, Dr. Gold. And so they were connected as the GP was identifying a need for specialized behavioral health services. And I'm not sure who made the connection, but um, you know they pointed in the direction of advanced recovery systems and Dr. Gold to say, this organization is you know, uh, very well established, has uh, you know, sets treatment centers in Florida at the time. Now we have centers across the country um, and they would be willing to explore what this looks like to design a center specific for your membership. So they put their heads together and uh, we met the needs. And so that's kind of where that, that came from. I, I can tell we're gonna get into the meat and potatoes of uh, the center of excellence. But before we do, your role um, as it stands right now, has a lot of leadership components. And I would just, I'm, I'm curious, a lot of what I talk about on the podcast relates directly to leadership and leadership development. And I was just wondering if you could maybe tell us a little bit about your leadership philosophy and, and maybe talk about um, maybe some individuals or uh, just experiences that have helped shape your leadership philosophy. One of the things I'll say, uh, I recently read some leadership uh, books and in particular a book called People Follow You. Um, and one of the primary takeaways from that book is that uh, most people stay at a job or leave a job because of their manager. Um, and that as a manager, you have the opportunity to build a team that will stand behind you. Um, and we all know that it, it costs more money and takes a lot more time to bring on a new hire than it does to keep an old one, right? Um, and that it is your job not to do the work, but to make people happy to do the work for your team and to drive the bus essentially, right? Um, I, I will say, I like to think that I'm a pretty hands-off manager. Um, I have a lot of faith in my team that we hired the right people and gave them the right training and resources to do a great job. And it, it does not behoove me or them for me to lean over their shoulder and ask you know, what they're doing every hour of the day um, because it doesn't instill trust that they have the ability to do their job. And I really am confident that the team we've built does. Um, I know I don't like to be micromanaged. I can't think of any person that, you know, says, oh, I love to be micromanaged. Um, and in some ways there are, there are things like metric tools that um, are inherently going to be a requirement of job evaluation, right? But the more that we can instill a level of trust and accountability in those that 
uh, work on our teams, I think the hot, more likely they are to produce the results we are looking for because you're empowering them to you know, be the captain of their own ship essentially and deliver the results that you're asking them to do, not because you, you know, uh, move their hand in every direction to get it done, but because they wanted to meet the expectations that you set. And like I said, you know, people follow you. If you are a good manager to them, if you're a good person to them, um, they're, they're more, I would, I would think that they're more likely to rise to the standard that you're trying to set. Um, not only because they have a responsibility to you as a boss, but responsibility to you as a human and a friend. And in your role as sort of the, the face of the center, um, as you're going out and, and speaking to groups and that sort of thing, that to me is taking on a leadership role, uh, sort of leading people to resources that are available. And um, can, can you give a little uh, taste of I don't know, your approach to, to enlightening those that, that you interact with? Yeah, great question. Um, you know, our primary objective certainly is to promote the IFF Center of Excellence as the treatment center that it is. Um, but in doing so, what we've built is really a um, more all-encompassing cadre of resources. So my team, and not just because we're trying to, you know, engage more people, but because it's the right thing to do, has always said, if it's not an IFF member, call us anyway. If it's somebody's spouse, call us anyway. Even if we can't help at the IFF Center of Excellence, we're gonna go as far out of our way as needed to make sure that person gets connected to the resources that they need. Um, that's true of, you know, different populations that might not be specific for the Center of Excellence, but also resources that are not inpatient care. So if someone were to call us, it, this happens all the time. People call us and say, you know, I'm looking for a therapist near Orlando, Florida. Well, certainly it's not gonna be at the Center of Excellence that's in Maryland, uh, but we will work to identify the right provider for that person and connect them because it's the right thing to do. Um, similarly, we are offering educational webinars now because we can't travel as much and um, engage with the membership and, and different state and local groups uh, on the road, um, we, we've created this educational component that is allowing, we're working towards allowing clinicians to be able to get continuing education credits for free. Um, firefighters, depending on their agency, can utilize the, these credits uh, for their certifications and the things that they need to stay current. Um, not because we have to, or because it really even serves a purpose of uh, admitting clients to the center of excellence, but because we are focused on increasing awareness, increasing education around behavioral health issues as to best support IFF members, their families, other first responder groups, because it's the right thing to do. And in doing all of that, I think we are positioning ourselves and have positioned ourselves as the experts in treating firefighters, not just because we do so on campus and have treated over 1400 members in three years, but because we do it all you know, outpatient resources, uh, support groups, um, in resources for spouses and family members, education for clinicians and fire service members. Um, and that's how you become a go-to resource is doing as much as you can for as many people as you can for as long as you can. Since the center's inception and the first round of patients moved through its halls, how has PTSD changed uh, maybe in our understanding of it and the approach to treating it? Well, I won't speak for our medical director, Dr. Morris, um, who is a psychiatrist and would be the one on campus diagnosing patients with PTSD or other behavioral health um, conditions. And But what I can tell you, even just in this job for the last three years with the IFF, the conversation around PTSD and post-traumatic stress, the spectrum of it has changed significantly. Um, I, I think local leadership, departmental leadership and management are wrapping their arms around the idea that this is an occupational issue, uh, similarly to cancer, similar to a physical injury, 
um, these post-traumatic stress can directly be linked back to exposure on the job, and we need to treat it as such. Um, in the last few years, we've seen a great shift in workers' compensation coverage for post-traumatic stress. We've seen uh, cities, you know, uh, take on responsibility for their injured workers seeking care or resources. So um, while I can't necessarily speak to um, a medical, sh if there has been a change in how it has been approached medically, I can say from a cultural standpoint, we have made leaps and bounds in three years. And I think a large part of that is the existence of the IFF Center of Excellence. With the international recognizing that this is a problem to the level of needing our own facility for it, I think so many members and individuals who have experienced something like this have felt more comfortable reaching out for help because the international has said, we understand this is an issue, we want to help. And simply by offering that, it's not, you know, not even an olive branch, but uh, the signal that you're not alone in this. Um, I heard a, a, a very interesting phrase yesterday from a firefighter uh, in Milwaukee, and it was that firefighters often suffer from terminal uniqueness. They think that this can only be me. I, I can only be the only person dealing with this because the guy next to me is too brave. He's too cool. He's too much of a pro to have the feelings or be bothered by the you know things that I'm bothered by, whether it's a call or a family issue or whatever else. Um, and, and firefighters often suffer alone and in silence because of this terminal uniqueness. And I think the creation of the Center of Excellence was a big signal to say, you are definitely not alone in this. This is an occupational issue. This is an issue that ranges across uh, rural departments, metropolitan departments, small departments, uh, union departments, non-union departments, female firefighters, male firefighters, whoever, um, that we are gonna provide support and resources for. And that's where I've seen the biggest shift in how we approach PTSD is the resources that are available to it and how much more comfortable people are talking about it. Not to say that it's a comfortable topic. I think we have a very long way to go, but just the, the change that's taken place in three years, I think over the next 10, uh, this is gonna be something we talk about more like firefighter uh, firefighters and their likelihood of uh, exposure to carcinogens and cancer and less about you know a moral failing or not being tough enough to handle the job. If a firefighter listens to this and, and believes they are in need of your services, what steps do they take to receive them and, and what can they expect in the way of treatment and services? We try to make the admissions process as easy as possible. Um, my admissions line, um, which A, sends me a notification that someone's called in that I can follow up with, uh, but B, connects you to our 24-hour admissions center, is 877-482-0887. Uh, but you can also Google the IFF Center of Excellence and there's a phone number that'll connect you there too. Um, once you reach our admission center, we have two intake coordinators that are specific to the IFF Center of Excellence. They're both former paramedics. Um, they're both in recovery and they have been awesome in helping thousands of individuals uh, facilitate treatment with us, facilitate treatment elsewhere, or like we talked about earlier, outpatient resources, you know, different resources that they might need, um, but they are so good at the, their jobs and talking about tough stuff, um, whether it's a substance use issue, a primary mental health issue, a I don't know what it is issue, but I need some help. Um, our, our team in the, the call center is incredible and, and has been with us since the start. So they've uh, heard it all, seen it all, and are ready to help uh, as much as they can. But uh, you call in, you would explain, you know, what's going on. Uh, a lot of our members call in uh, with a catalyst, right? Perhaps their spouse has said, I can't do this anymore. You need to get some help or you need, something has to change here. Perhaps they have gotten a disciplinary action at work. Um, perhaps they're just sick and tired of feeling sick and tired, you know? Um, we, like I said, we've, we've heard it all, but um, we'll assess need from there. You know, is this a substance use issue? Is this mental health? Is it both? Um, 
and identify clinical suitability for the program. Uh, we'll walk the member through a 20 question pre-assessment um, to ensure clinical suitability. That gets reviewed by an in-house clinician. We'll collect insurance benefits. Um, most members across the country are commercially insured. Um, so that's generally not an issue, but if there is an insurance issue, it's my team that takes that takes the reins and tries to overcome that. Um, our facility by far has the most, uh, rather the highest rate of single case agreement approvals uh, across our whole company, uh, which essentially for insurers that are not in network with our facility uh, request that they evaluate our care for an exception because we are the only treatment center uh, in the country and uh, North America that is exclusive to the fire service population, specializes in post-traumatic stress and has the type of outcomes that we do. Um, so we have great level of success with that, but by and large insurance has not been an issue because we are in network with almost every major insurer in the country. Um, so from there, um, assuming that the clinical evaluation uh, is deemed suitable for our program, um, we'll coordinate travel with the individual. You know, some people are trying to come in tomorrow. Some people have things to work around or sick leave to plan for. Um, and we'll, you know, coordinate that uh, according to their needs. Um, and then an individual would travel to the center of excellence, either by plane, by car, sometimes by train. Um, we will pick up at any of the three local airports and transport someone to the center. And then, um, from there, they admit with the program. Um, every individual's treatment journey looks different. Um, we're not a program that is 28 days or 30 days. It, it greatly varies based on the individual and their needs and the progress that they make in treatment. So um, we've had, I'll say our average length of stay is about 40 days, uh, but I can think of many individuals who came in and you know, completed their program and their treatment objectives in 28 or 30 days. And I can think of another who was a, a responder to the Oklahoma City bombing and was with us for 88 days. So it varies uh, based on different factors, but um, we identify programming needs. Is this a client who has PTSD? Are we gonna put them on a trauma-focused track? Is this more uh, geared towards substance use? Um, if it's trauma, what kind of trauma and, and what kind of programming should they pursue because of that? Um, we offer EMDR, which is eye, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing therapy um, on campus. That's largely considered to be a gold standard of trauma treatment, but it's not for everybody. So we figure out what works best for each client. We design a treatment plan uh, accordingly, and then they work with their multidisciplinary team and case management team to meet those objectives and work towards discharge and a transition plan home. So you mentioned EMDR as being the gold standard, I, I'm guessing that there are other treatments for post-traumatic stress that you guys utilize. Um, what treatment has seen the most success? I'm, I'm guessing because you said it's the gold standard EMDR has seen the most success? Um, it's almost impossible to say because it is different for every single person. Um, and I asked our clinical director this question because I wanted, wanted it from her perspective. And I'll tell you what she said. She said, treatment includes a wide range of interventions for everyone who comes into treatment, including group therapy, individual, family, medical, and case management. Patients will have access to a range of interventions while they are in treatment. So identifying one treatment as having the most success is not something we could accurately pinpoint. I can tell you that patients consistently express high levels of investment in our CPT or cognitive processing therapy informed trauma processing groups. I can also note that patients also consistently express that they value the work they do with multiple clinical interventions. So my takeaway from Jess's comments there is that um, it takes a village and often it takes a few different approaches. You know, it's, it's holistic in that sense. And so we do utilize a lot of cognitive processing therapy, a lot of cognitive behavioral therapy, EMDR for the appropriate individuals. And I've heard a lot about uh, the great reception of psycho psychoeducation. Um, it makes sense to me that firefighters are paramedical professionals, right? You guys have training in how the body works and what you need to do to take care of it and respond in certain ways in certain situations. So learning more about how the brain works in that way is something that I think a lot of firefighters derive great satisfaction in having a better understanding of and how 
what they've experienced, perhaps their trauma exposures, how that has impacted the brain to be conducive to what perhaps they're seeing in terms of symptoms or the, the issues that they're facing. Um, so I've heard that from in one in particular firefighter who, had, who attended, he said, you know, I just didn't know enough about neuroscience to understand why my brain was working the way it was. But once I did, it was like a light bulb went off. So I've always thought that the psychoeducation piece is really fascinating, um, but it makes all the sense because you guys work in healthcare in a sense, you know, so that type of information goes a long way with, with our, our client groups. I will be posting some links to different resources in, in the show notes and actually on, on my website as well uh, in a separate section just for uh, behavioral health. One of the things that I, I found really interesting when I did some of the research was how polyvagal theory has, well, it does a really good job of, of explaining the physiological effects and, and how EMDR works to overcome those physiological effects of PTSD. Um, I thought it was really interesting. So I'll be posting some of that uh, on, on the website and in the show notes as well. Is there a research component within the center's approach to treatment and shaping future treatment plans? That's an awesome question. And I don't know if you maybe already know the answer and are teaming me up uh, to talk about something awesome, uh, but maybe not. Uh, the answer is yes. So um, there's kind of a, uh, I don't want to say a, a phrase within the treatment community that is awful and it's called treat it's treat and street right so that someone would come to your program and you would treat them and street them right and now they're not your problem anymore um and this is not me being critical of any other treatment organization um keeping up with clients into perpetuity would be an impossible feat right uh for any organization especially because it is so contingent upon client engagement um but for us uh, the research factor was a huge component of building the center of excellence uh, for a few reasons. One, this information doesn't particularly, or, or the information that I, I think a lot of people are seeking in terms of firefighter behavioral health concerns doesn't really exist, right? Because the there has not been a, a consistent client group anywhere else that would have come from the same occupation to have those control factors to be able to do extensive research or, or clinical studies on one group with, with this commonality. Um, so in building the center of excellence, obviously our, our client group is exclusive to professional firefighters, paramedics, and dispatchers. We've been able to achieve that. And one of the IFF's objectives was to have more data, to have more research, to support initiatives in getting this type of uh, care covered under workers' compensation and making better cases for um, these things in the legislature, um, having better research to provide to insurance companies that we need to make a case for this type of care for. Um, so there's a, a lot of reasons why this research is important, um, but it needed to be done, but it had to be done with, with the right control factors in place. So with that in mind, we do collect uh, data on clients that are willing to participate, and it is an important objective, but obviously um, they don't have to participate if they don't want to. Um, but most everyone has been very um, engaged in understanding why this information is important and how it can further the objectives of um, the IFF and professional firefighter communities everywhere. Um, so we collect data as clients are in treatment based on you know how they admit and what those symptoms look like, how they're um, scoring on different clinical scales in terms of symptomology. Um, the audit scale stands out to me. That's um, the hazardous drinking scale. And I, I believe it's an eight is considered hazardous drinking or binge drinking. Um, the average score for an admitted client at the Center of Excellence is a 15. <laughs> so that's very high, you know, um, and it speaks to the idea that firefighters, from what we can see from the data, have a, not all obviously, um, but have a tendency to binge drink and um, can do it 
in achieving a score far higher than we, I think any other one group may have. But we don't know because the data didn't exist previously. But to me, that that score, that an eight is hazardous and our client group is on average scoring a 15, that's pretty indicative of you know significant alcohol use. So that's one of the scales that we use upon admission, right? And then upon we do these scales again um, upon discharge to see what the change has been over the course of treatment. You know, obviously if, if you're in inpatient care, you're not going to have access to alcohol. So the audit score is not necessarily one that we're measuring before and after. Um, but there are different scales according to symptoms for generalized anxiety disorder, uh, major depressive disorder, PTSD. And so we're measuring where individuals are scoring on these scales upon admission and then upon discharge. And then each individual is asked to participate in 18 months of aftercare follow-up and um, clinical research after they discharge. So we are in touch with each client um, one month after discharge, two months, three months, and then every three months after that um, to not only assess their wellness, are they following their aftercare plan? Are they back to work? If they're back to work, at what um, level are they back to work? Light duty, modified duty, full duty. And then, you know, also trying to see where they're scoring on, on these clinical scales to evaluate efficacy of the program, um, perhaps how aftercare involvement factors into long-term um, either sobriety or success. So there is a there is a research component. It is super important to us. We have a full-time research assistant on campus actually um, who does this type of data collection. I'll tell you, it has made my job a lot easier because I'm able to show employers, insurers, different groups um, that have a stake in firefighters returning to work and getting better that our program works and that we can point to this data to show you that you know these are the changes that these individuals have made over time with uh, the assistance of comprehensive treatment, and even you know this is our return to work rate or uh, the improvement of the family unit that these individuals are reporting. So we're very pleased by the data we've been able to collect and are excited to continue to bolster it as the program goes on. And is that data available to other clinicians if they're seeking? to improve their abilities as a clinician treating firefighters or first responders? So we're willing to share the outcomes data. Um, however, I wouldn't necessarily say that it would help a clinician to become better themselves. Um, it, it isn't necessarily um, you know, a, a manual in what we have done and how you can do it too. It is more of a, a measurable success of each respondent in terms of where they are scoring clinically. Um, and that could be based on a lot of factors, like we talked about, right? A multidisciplinary approach and treatment team. Um, some individuals are coming in with two years on the job. Some people are coming in with 22 years or 42 years on the job, uh, different family situations. So um, what I will say for clinicians that may be interested in learning more about what we're doing and how they could potentially take some of that away. Um, our educational webinars that I spoke about, we have one that happens every month and it is um, called Treating Fire Service Professionals, Building Cultural Competency. And we take, it's about 90 minutes and we go through what firefighters might feel is some basic information, uh, but the general populace and certainly a lot of clinical professionals without exposure to the fire service wouldn't necessarily know, you know, the, the shift work of it, right? One of the things that impacts mental health uh, significantly is sleep. And so a clinician may be inclined to say, well, you just need to get more sleep. <laughs> well, that's not really that easy to do when you, you know, are, are a firefighter on a shift schedule and you have to be awake for a certain amount of time. So, um, you know, we're trying to help clinicians learn more about the culture, uh, the dynamics of the fire service, treatment approaches that may work better than others based on what we've learned. Um, but that is definitely more of a qualitative presentation that we invite people to participate in, whereas the data outcomes is definitely more quantitative, but doesn't share, um, you know, methodology or some of the uh, anecdotal takeaways that we're able to share with the clinical population. Is there a rotation of clinicians or are all of your clinicians full-time? Do they um, work like nine to five or shift work kind of things? And then 
um, what are the minimum qualifications to be considered for employment as a clinician at the at the center? So we have a core team of full-time clinicians, but then we also have some part-time clinicians as well as PRN. Um, so those individuals are more like contractors who come in as needed. Um, a clinician must be a fully licensed social worker or counselor within the state of Maryland. Um, and to be fully licensed, they would need to be a master's level clinician or have a master's degree in their specific discipline, um, as well as meet supervision and experience hours uh, to meet Maryland state regulations. So we look for individuals who have prior experience in a residential setting, um, specifically treating substance abuse and trauma. Um, if they have a background in working with first responders, obviously firefighters is a, a huge plus, but um, you know, we're the only center that is exclusive to firefighters. So that experience for the most part is pretty limited, right? To, to individuals that would be working for us other than perhaps those that would be coming from, you know, like the VA or something like that. Um, but our team uh, comes from a wide array of backgrounds. They have different licensures, uh, but all of our clinicians are master's levels, master's level clinicians. Okay, so you're, you have your full-time staff and your part-time staff. And uh, I imagine the part-time staff is exposed to quite a bit, at, you know, as are the full-time staff, but is there vicarious trauma care for your clinicians? And, and what does that look like? What does it consist of um, if, if you do? So we're actually working on um, developing a training for staff members that we intend to provide on an annual basis uh, for this. And, you know, I know I've mentioned a few times, but there was no roadmap for building the center of excellence or a facility that is exclusive to this population who does have a lot of trauma, right? Inherently is going to be unpacking a lot of trauma with their clinicians. Um, so supervisory staff is checking in with our clinicians regularly to gauge risk for vicarious trauma, but we are trying to develop that curriculum to kind of bolster what that looks like in terms of training for identifying that. Um, Self-care is encouraged a lot. And I know that might sound simple, but you know, if you've ever worked for a company or an agency that has very high standards and is go, 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 um, if they're not telling you to take care of yourself, you might not feel inclined to do so yourself. You know? So that's very important to us is relaying that in order to take care of other people, you have to take care of yourself. And that's a message for, for our firefighter clients too, right? I mean, you guys are taking care of people all the time. Your job is to show up on people's worst day, but you can't do that if you don't have it within yourself to have taken care of what you need to take care of before you show up, right? You can't pour from an empty cup. So um, one of the other things our clinical director mentioned to me was that um, the trauma processing group staff on campus is currently uh, doing rotations to minimize risk for accumulated vicarious traumas. Um, staff personally value self-care and treatment as needed to ensure maintenance of wellness. So they're working to ensure that obviously we have the best trauma clinicians working with our, our clients, but that it's maybe not the same people every day so that that vicarious trauma becomes compounded. Um, so they're working on doing that on a rotating basis. Are you aware of any efforts by the center or the international to push out similar training or awareness to uh, firefighters to maybe minimize uh, the incidence of PTSD? Um, so one thing that comes to mind is the resiliency training that the IFF is launching. And I am super excited about what that curriculum looks like. Um, the peer support program, I believe launched in 2016. And since then, they've been working to develop this resiliency course to do exactly what you described, to um, you know, help firefighters and those responding to these traumatic events uh, be able to build resilience in themselves and among their team to uh, apply the tools that they need to get through those situations and maintain their own health and their own wellness. So I don't have details on that. I know it was work. It was supposed to be rolled out this year, but you know everything kind of got thrown into disarray. So I do believe they're working on um, a virtual version of that training, and I think there's supposed to be some news on how that's going to be rolled out towards the very end of this year. 
So um, I'm looking forward to what the resiliency training means for our affiliates because um, I hear a lot about how do we build resilience? You know, how can we help our members be prepared for these things and, um, you know, work to help our members prevent the uh, exacerbation of behavioral health issues by building resiliency. So I, I'm looking forward to the, this course being rolled out by the behavioral health team. One of the things that I, I came across when researching PTSD is, well, there's, there doesn't seem to be any real pinpoint cause of what individuals are going to experience it and what individuals are going to resist um, that trauma. And one of the things that, that I came across was the, the ACE study, the study that looks at childhood trauma and how it can affect individuals later on in life and maybe become more susceptible to uh, mental, mental health disorders. Are you aware of, of any approaches used at the center that, that maybe have looked at that study? And I'm guessing there has, but I just kind of wanted to see if you were aware of any. Yeah. Um, so firstly, you know, you mentioned that um, it, it's hard to say how people uh, acquire post-traumatic stress, right? Or any mental health issue. And, and I think that's where we have to draw align more closely to more physical conditions like cancer. You know, two firefighters could walk into a fire together and do the same work and walk out together. And 10 years down the line, or maybe less, who knows, one could have cancer that is specifically related or presumptively related to their job. Um, and another one may not, right? Um, mental health issues are not different than that. You know, it, there are so many factors and um, one call or a hundred calls could impact two firefighters the same way, but more likely than not, it's gonna impact them very differently. Um, so it is hard to pinpoint. Um, in relation to ACEs, so that stands for Adverse Childhood Experiences. Um, we do utilize that a lot on campus. Um, we have regularly occurring psychoeducational groups um, on different topics, but ACEs is one of them um, because you're exactly right. Um, adverse childhood experiences are uh, directly associated with um, an increased use of alcohol, um, drug abuse, mental health conditions, depressive disorder, marital issues, physical, uh, physical issues like uh, cardiovascular disease, right? And we know that the number one killer of firefighters is cardiovascular issues. So when you combine all these things, um, it absolutely could heighten someone's risk for post-traumatic stress. Um, anecdotally, Dr. Morris, our medical director on campus, has said, I think, she, I think she says in her experience working with our clients, 1,400 of them, and she's seen every single one of them, um, she thinks about a third of them have social anxiety. Um, and that that is also uh, a factor in considering adverse childhood experiences. And what she was able to kind of deduce from a lot of these conversations over time is that her um, takeaway was that perhaps a great number of firefighters seek out this profession as a way to help other people because of adverse childhood experiences, right? Perhaps they experienced child abuse or sexual abuse, and they want to make sure that they are a helper, that they are there to prevent that from happening to someone in the future. You all are altruistic people who are there to make a difference and to help help others. So it makes sense that, that you might be led to this career, led to this career um, by an experiences in your childhood that have compelled you to want to help other people. And she said that is exceptionally true of the members she has spoken to on campus. So obviously those that are seeking behavioral health care, especially on a, in a residential setting, um, that subset of firefighters cannot be uh, scaled to be the entire uh, population of fire service professionals. You know, those are, these are those who have sought out this type of care. Um, but as she said, from her experience in treating those that we have, um, adverse childhood experiences are 
um, very frequent and in her belief often uh, were one of the motivating factors for many people seeking this type of career. You were extremely knowledgeable in all of this and, and I'm sure part of that goes to the amount of time that you've spent in your position, but how, how do you stay up to date? How do you continue to learn in order to stay ahead of the curve within your role? I will say that I never really loved school. Um, I was more of a doer rather than a student. Um, but over the last few years, you know, this type of clinical experience is not, was not necessarily in my wheelhouse at all. But to be able to do my job and, and work with members who need this help and answer questions knowledgeably, you know, I've had to educate myself on a lot of things I didn't necessarily ever expect to know a lot or even a little about. So, um, you know, going back to what I said earlier about having a team around you that is competent and talented and trustworthy, um, you know, one of the best things we did was bring on a master's level clinician. She's a social worker um, onto our outreach team. So she's shadowed and done work at the center, but she doesn't actually treat patients. She's on our outreach team to provide education and kind of um, lead the charge on some of these uh, proactive efforts to help members through the educational opportunities we're offering. So I've learned a ton from her because we have put our heads together to say, what do members care about? What can we offer to people that they want to engage in? How does this impact them? And we've done the research to put these presentations together, you know, but she has a far different background than I do. And she has a uh, license in social work and has a master's degree in psychology. So I've been able to, I've been able to learn a lot from her. I've been able to learn a lot from Dr. Morris, who is double board certified in uh, psychiatry and neurology and addiction medicine. Um, and to hear her talk, you know, I know people have a, an idea of what a psychiatrist looks like, or, right? And, and she's not that. Um, she is a, a big Philadelphia Eagles fan. That's one of the first things she'll tell you. And um, she tells it like it is. And she is a very compelling presenter and speaker and educator um, because she is highly knowledgeable about the brain and psychiatry, but uh, speaks in such a language that firefighters and the lay person like myself understand, find engaging, um, and can apply to their real life and their real situation um, and utilize for the betterment of others. So um, the IAFF also has clinicians on their staff that I pick their brains regularly about, you know, tell me more about this or what could we offer to members in this topic or what kind of, you know, presentations or curriculum have you already prepared that we can utilize for these purposes. So, um, you know, I would say just being resourceful and always willing to learn. I certainly know that I am not a medical professional. I'm not a clinical professional. My job is to bridge firefighters and fire service groups to resources that are clinical and medical. But in doing that, I have to know at least somewhat about what I'm talking about and, and at least be able to say with confidence, which I can, that I know that our program and the resources we offer are the best for fire service members. Because when you've seen 1,400 firefighters, paramedics, or dispatchers over the course of time, um, our team and our staff at the center has gotten immersion in what it means to successfully treat a firefighter and to meet them where they are, because this is all that they do. So I guess to wrap that one up, I would say, I'm always trying to learn about things that I know are outside of my scope, even if it sounds like, oh, that's not my job. Well, it helps me to know more about it. And, and I want to help others know more about it. So I try to learn as much as I can. I think that approach is applicable to the fire service as well. What's the biggest challenge you have within your specific role right now and how are you going to overcome it? Well, we've certainly learned to adapt over the last few months, but if you'd asked me this question in May or even June, I would have told you that I was ready to pull my hair out, not being able to go anywhere. Um, as I discussed previously, my job kept me on the road about 25 days a month, which could be exhausting, but I loved it. I loved getting to meet firefighters from Orlando and then two days later, Minneapolis and three days later, California, and then up to 
you know, Newfoundland, I've been there in Canada. So, uh, you know, I love that aspect of my job. And I think it made me better at, at the job because I was able to learn more about the communities that we were serving and be in those communities and be at your fire station and your union hall to understand the dynamic of different groups a little bit better. Um, and I think anyone can agree that learning something, actually, I don't know that anyone can agree. What I can tell you is that I never did very well in my online classes. <laughs> I did a lot better in classes that I had to actually go to, right? So, and that was the point of why we would fly across the country or into Canada to go to these peer support trainings or to conduct these educational presentations or to, to do health and safety symposiums. Because we know that meeting someone and um, having you know, a warm body that you know from the center of excellence is A, gonna make you more likely to call them and utilize those resources if, if the need arises. And B, um, you're probably going to be more engaged and take away more from that type of presentation. That's, that's my uh, take on why we were prioritizing being places physically that hasn't been an option. So we've had to adapt. Um, I've been at home since March 15th um, and I hadn't been at home that much uh, in years, but you know, we, we have to roll with the punches and keep people safe, but continue to do our jobs. And that's where we've pivoted to this virtual model of education with the webinars that I think, even though we haven't necessarily been able to connect with the people we would have liked to in person, maybe we've been able to reach more people because we're able to host one event that individuals from Canada and California and Florida and New York. And we even had someone from Africa and someone else from the Netherlands join us recently. Um, so, you know, it's just a different approach, but, but I would say that's been the biggest challenge is just adapting to a new way of life. I know you mentioned the, the webinars earlier, but can you, maybe plug those webinars one more time and how, how do people access those? Absolutely. So um, as I mentioned, you know, in figuring out a way that we could continue to provide educational opportunities to fire service members while being removed from our, our general opportunities, we cooked up this webinar initiative. And um, the team member of mine, Molly, who is our, our social worker, on the team, um, she's doing a lot of the heavy lifting in terms of curriculum um, and creating these educational presentations to share. Um, we started in May. I think we've done over 20 presentations. Um, we try to do three a month. So we've, we've gone from May all the way up until October now um, on varying topics. So we've covered addiction in the fire service, work-life balance, um, post-traumatic stress, um, the cultural competency presentation I spoke about, um, suicide in the fire service. We're gearing up to host one for family members and spouses. Uh, we're going to be doing another one on, you know, communication between a firefighter and their spouse and how they might be able to help improve that, bringing on a family marriage therapist. So, um, you know, we're bringing on uh, clinicians who work in this field, who have experience uh, as well as firefighters that are behavioral health champions in their agency and have experience of their own. Um, one of our members yesterday joined us. He, it, he is celebrating 26 years of sobriety, which is not necessarily an easy feat in the fire service, but he was sharing his experience and how he's been able to do that. And we got so much good feedback from other fire service members that said, geez, just hearing from someone with this experience has encouraged me to keep going, you know? So, um, those can be found on our website. Um, if you go to ifsrecoverycenter.com uh, under the community education tab, uh, we also post those on our Facebook page. So the IFF Recovery Center Facebook page, um, they're open to anyone. They're free. Uh, we encourage fire service members to join us, family members, clinicians. Some of the trainings are designed specifically for clinicians to expose them to the things we've talked about, kind of that cultural competency, a little bit more about the dynamics of addiction in the fire service or trauma in the fire service. Um, we've done two presentations on peer support, one for um, individuals looking to build out their peer program, and then another for clinicians looking to become engaged with a peer team. So there's something for everyone. Um, we're always looking to hear feedback about what people want to, because that's the whole objective is to 
deliver education that people want and need. Um, and we have a, a vast array of resources uh, between our clinical network, the IFF's clinicians, our team members who are working diligently to put this member this information together for members. So um, we would love to have anyone who may be listening join us for those. Um, they generally happen every Thursday. Uh, we take one, one week off a month, but you can find more information at ifffrecoverycenter.com under resources and then the community education tab. Awesome. I will put all those links in the, in the show notes as well. To shift gears a little bit, just a little bit, what's the biggest surprise you've had in the last few months and, and why would that be the biggest surprise? I don't know that it would have happened in the last few months, but one of the biggest surprises I've had with this job is how open fire service members have been, those that have gone to treatment at the Center of Excellence, how open they've been to sharing their story and experience with anyone who will listen. Um, you know, going to treatment is hard. Asking for help is hard. And even members that were reluctant to ask for help or make the call or come to treatment, nine times out of 10, I either see them at a convention or a peer support training, or we see them on Facebook or writing Google reviews about how the center of excellence saved my life. And they want to tell anyone who will listen about it. And it kind of clicked for me that like, wow, that's a very private experience for some people, you know, and, and a lot of people don't want other people to know that they went to treatment, you know, or rehab. But our firefighter clients, I think once they have this realization of, oh, these resources are available and they changed my life, you guys are helpers and you're willing to do almost anything to help each other, certainly. And if that means opening up about something that a lot of people find to be private or and, and it shouldn't be this way, but might find embarrassing, right? They went to treatment, forget it. Almost every firefighter I've met that's been to treatment is willing to tell anybody about it if it will help them, if it will save someone else's life, if it will improve someone else's marriage or job. They will talk to anybody who will listen because they know that what they did helped them and it could help somebody else too. So I, at first I was, Every single time I was taken aback that someone was willing to stand up in front of a room full of people, sometimes people that they knew, sometimes people that they didn't know so well, and tell them, I went to treatment and if anyone is considering it or knows someone that needs it, call them because it makes a huge difference and it will save your life. Um, it, it takes my breath away almost every time because that is such a level of vulnerability to share that, um, but yet it is so encouraging because I can travel any, you know, from here to Timbuktu and tell people about the center of excellence and encourage them to call us if they need us. But to hear it from another firefighter, that changes the game for a lot of people. We get it, you trust each other. And I know that other firefighters know that, right? So they, they really have embraced the idea that I'm gonna go back to my department or go back to my local and tell people about this because it'll make a difference. And I'm just so grateful for the willingness to share that um, and the courage that so many members have shown in an effort to help other people. We've, we've covered a lot of ground discussing mental health, the, the center, your experiences. Maybe, maybe we could touch on something that's been inspirational to you. Uh, you just mentioned what has surprised you, and that seemed to be uh, inspirational for you, but Maybe, maybe a specific story or a specific experience in your time and your position that has inspired you. Okay, so one that I'll share, you know, and it goes back to, to my point about members being willing to share things that might otherwise be considered private um, in an effort to help other people. Um, in an example of that, I was tasked with coordinating our, the production of our virtual tour on campus. And this was important because, you know, we're located in Maryland, but we have members who are interested in coming to us or learning more about the center from all over the country and Canada. And many of them are not gonna have the opportunity or not very easily have the opportunity to come and tour and get a feel for what the campus is like. And it, it is important to see the campus because I think a lot of people think of 
uh, rehab facilities or mental health treatment facilities as being, you know, lockdown. Um, what are those things called? Straight jackets, um, you know, padded walls, nurses with glazed over eyes. Um, these these very sterile mental health hospital experiences, and and some are like that by necessity. Um, and that is not the center of excellence. We understand who our, who our client group is, what you've seen and where you've brought people and where no one would be inclined to go to help themselves. Um, and so, you know, the, the purpose was to show off our campus and make people feel more comfortable seeking out care at the center of excellence because they have an idea of where they're going. So in doing so, um, we talked about how we were gonna feature the campus and that we needed people to participate. And we discussed utilizing actors um, because that would probably be the easiest thing is to have, you know, have them follow our instructions and hire people for the day and shoot the campus. Um, but what became the decision was that we wanted to use actual firefighters and preferably actual firefighters who had gone to the center of excellence to make it a much more authentic view of what is it like here and what kind of people are here and what you can expect, you know? And I, I think that firefighters have a pretty good BS meter. And if we had used actors, they would have known and they would have felt it to be a little you know, less authentic. So we made the right choice. But I had to find these individuals and we wanted to pick people who had been in recovery for at least a year um, that lived you know, somewhere in the reasonable distance to drive to campus to participate in this, that were willing to do it, et cetera. You know? So the list became shorter and shorter, um, but we had five gentlemen join us uh, from the center, or I'm sorry, from the surrounding area. And all of them worked for departments in Maryland and Virginia. Um, and they came out, they spent all day uh, shooting this virtual tour with us. And over and over again, they just kept telling us, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you, you know, for this opportunity. Thank you for letting us participate. Thank you for existing, you know, and I couldn't, I was like, thank you guys, you know, for coming out here and spending your time with us. Well, it wasn't until the end that I learned that one of them actually lived in West Virginia. And he had driven four hours to come do this video shoot with us and never once told me this. You know, I thought he lived maybe an hour away. And we finished up at like five o'clock and he said, okay, I'm gonna, you know, head back to West Virginia. And I said, are you kidding? You know, you drove all this way to do this and you spent your, you took a day off from work to do this, you drove all this way. And he said, this is nothing. If I can, if, if doing this helps anybody else, it was time and effort well spent, <laughs> you know? And I just thought, wow, like he didn't even flinch at driving from West Virginia all the way to Maryland. And I know that, you know, they're somewhat close, but it was like four hours away uh, to come be a part of this because he knew that it would help somebody else. So, you know, I would say that was an inspirational moment where I'm always reminded about how kind and altruistic firefighters are, but that was a very tangible moment of, wow, this guy spent his whole day from 6 a.m. and he won't get home until 10 o'clock probably uh, just to help us with this project and never once made a mention of having to go out of his way to do it. Is there anything that we haven't covered that you believe is important to touch on be before we uh, part ways? Nothing particular stands out other than, you know, just the encouragement to anyone who may be listening to uh, be vigilant and, you know, take account for the people around you. Um, it, it's not easy, but it's important to ask people how they're doing and actually listen <laughs> um, and mean it when you ask, you know, like, especially after a tough call or something like that. Um, it's okay to not be okay. And we have to encourage people to talk about those things. You know, we talked about resiliency. We talked about some ways to um, maybe, you know, you don't want to say avoid post-traumatic stress, but mitigate it perhaps. And one of those things is communication and having a support network. So, you know, you all are family. We know that, but Sometimes, you know, we can do a better job of looking out for our family members and, and identifying when they may need someone to talk to. Um, and that could be a peer, that could be a professional, um, but just providing that level of support. I'll tell you, admitting to the center of excellence is a, 
not always, but can be a lot easier for people who have someone in their court and they know it. And especially coming back to work, you know, that can be the hardest part is reintegrating into that, that unit and not feeling as if people don't trust you anymore or don't uh, think that you're capable. Um, if we're signing off, you know, that they are cleared to return to work, um, we mean it. And to have the support of brothers and sisters goes a long way in continued longevity in their career and, and the support that they need to be successful in recovery. So um, if we can help in any way, whether that's education, providing local resources, um, facilitating treatment for someone who might need you know, a higher level of care that we can offer, that's what we're here to do. Uh, essentially one-stop shopping for anything you might need related to behavioral health. Um, that's my job is to connect different fire agencies with these resources and we would be thrilled to do so for for anyone who may need them or just be wanting to know what's out there awesome well thank you so much for spending this time with me and going over everything that you have i think well i'm i'm positive that somebody's going to hear this and it, it's bound to help at least one person so I, I really appreciate everything and, and everything that you've been doing at the center and your willingness to come on and, and talk about everything with me. I really, really do appreciate it. Absolutely, Dave. Well, thank you for this platform. And uh, we appreciate what you're doing, both as a peer um, and with this initiative. So um, keep up the great work. Obviously, continuing conversations about this are a huge part of making a difference. And breaking down stigmas and encouraging people to um, ask for help when they need it. So we really appreciate you and um, hope everyone stays safe. It's a, it's a chaotic time out there. So, you know, protect yourself and stay safe, uh, whatever that means, <laughs> both uh, mentally and physically. Thank you for listening to this episode of From Embers to Excellence. Please visit hollenbockleadership.com for additional content. Dave's goal is to add value to as many people as possible. So if he can be of any assistance to you or someone you know, please connect with him via email or on one of his social media accounts linked on the homepage of his website. Remember, our failures don't define us unless we let them. And the only true measure of a leader is the success of their team.